0: Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian. I'm the Editor-in-Chief. And once again, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Nerses Kopalian from Las Vegas, who will be talking to us about the February EVN uh, Security Briefing. Welcome to the program, Nerses.
1: Thank you for having me, Maria.
0: Um, This is our sixth Security Briefing. We launched it back in September 2022 after the large-scale Attack by Azerbaijan on Armenia proper. This was on September 22, 23. And since then, we have been providing data-driven, in-depth analysis of the precarious security situation, Um, from Azerbaijan using hybrid warfare tactics to its aggressive opportunism, its aversion to peace. And on the other hand, Armenia's diplomatization of its security. the need to build up its deterrence capabilities, and also the need to implement what you called a porcupine uh, doctrine. February's briefing, you called resilience. And as the Lachin corridor continues to remain blockaded by Azerbaijan, um, February saw a flurry of diplomatic activity on behalf of the Republic of Armenia. You write that Armenia has um, been in the process of decoupling from Russia and pivoting to Europe and the US, which has led to the deepening of the Russo-Azerbaijani access. Um, Armenia was able to announce its diplomatic and international instruments. We saw the EU civilian monitoring mission launch, and Armenia scored a very large victory at the International Court of Justice. What have these tools given Armenia in the context um, that we find ourselves in today?
1: Um, In the current circumstances, they have provided us uh, temporary and limited remedies to uh, the the set of serious um, security uh, problems that Armenia finds itself in. Um, It's clearly uh, an important improvement uh, compared to what we had in the past. Uh, and it does allow us to build on these and enhance our, our various um, non-military instruments because we, are, we have been diplomatizing our security. So uh, three things have kind of happened this month, which are very interesting, but also are developments that we had seen, what we had seen developing in the past. Uh, one, we saw that the, the issue with the launching corridor became immensely internationalized, and this has been a battle between Armenia and then uh, uh, Russia and uh, Azerbaijan with respect to internationalizing or keeping the conflict local. Uh, the latter two prefer to keep it. Uh, Localized role I mean, it wants to obviously internationalize it and bring in more uh, international Western partners, because this basically mitigates the problems that we are having. And so the ICJ victory, the victory at the uh, International Court of Justice, was a very, very important step. It also gives, I mean, a lot more legitimacy in the uh, sort of the international rules-based order that we're talking about. So we are uh, utilizing international instruments to address grievances and security problems as opposed to relying on force. So that's a very, very important indicator. Second, we did see an uh, enhanced discussion of uh, how uh, Armenia's growing democracy or its attempt at consolidating this democracy should be part of the security discourse. Um, there was a flurry of diplom- diplomatic activity, as you noted, uh, uh, with uh, uh, its European partners, and we've seen a lot of attention being applied to Armenia by the West within this context. And so we are Armenia is utilizing these two mechanisms to temporarily uh, qualify them as stopgap measures in at least somewhat mitigating or curtailing Azerbaijan's behavior towards the Republic of Armenia. And we have seen some of this uh, proving fruitful in that context. Azerbaijan realizing that the West, uh, perhaps indirectly, has uh, placed certain red lines as to what Azerbaijan can and cannot do with respect to Armenia, that this isn't 2022, that after September, there has been a lot more rigid Western pressure on Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan has basically changed the domain of conflict away from the Republic of Armenia to Artsakh, and we saw that these last few days as well, but we had also seen it for a longer period what was going on in, in launching. But sort of these con- configurations in uh, um, February kind of uh, crystallized and given us a better perspective of how Armenia is doing really well diplomatically and through international instruments, but the hard power security dilemma still remains obviously unsolved.
0: Um, Absolutely. And just as a reminder to our viewers, on March 5, uh, Azerbaijani forces ambushed a vehicle carrying uh, Armenian police officers in Artsakh who were using an alternative road. Uh, Three Armenian um, uh, officers were killed in that ambush. And we have seen, as you noted, in the last two weeks since... um, If if we can say that the European monitoring mission is serving as a... um, deterrence uh, capability. They are now um, violating the ceasefire regime in Artsakh. And we've seen several uh, attacks in Artsakh taking place. in light of all of this, you write that Armenia must develop comprehensive resilience capabilities, and I do want to get to that. But I do want to return to the democracy narrative, if we will. Um, you know, uh, Armenia's foreign minister Ararat Mirzoyan, at the launch of the Council of Europe's action plan for Armenia, made democracy a cornerstone of his speech, and then later, Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, at the Munich Security uh, Conference, said strengthening democracy is of strategic importance, and that is the solution to regional problems. Um, Revolving around democracy t- transparency. Um, is the democracy narrative enough at this point? Or is that
1: all of course do? Okay. Of course not. The dem- no narrative is ever going to be enough, right? You don't put all your basket thing, uh, eggs in one basket. We've learned that. We did that with Russia for 25 years, and we suffered the consequences. So most definitely not. Uh, Armenia is a, uh, in the process of diversifying its security toolkit. and But right now, considering the fact that we are what we are, and there's such a severe power disparity with Azerbaijan, we're utilizing international instruments, as I mentioned, diplomatization processes, and then, of course, uh, the the uh, democracy narrative so it is one component but of course it's not in of itself sufficient but the enhancement of each toolkit right or each instrument within a toolkit enhances the overarching uh, security approach and this is what the the security uh dilemma is basically uh, supposed to be uh, resolved through or at least for some extent be mitigated through so the democracy narrative is one component of that uh, and we you know we, we were very honest about this when we when we addressed the issue. There were very high expectations that Europe, for example, would have bought into the uh, democracy narrative and to, to the extent to which Armenia expected it in twenty twenty two, but it didn't. Europe made the decision that they have a they have a pending severe security uh, uh, energy security issue at hand, and so they chose to have a more transactional principle that shaped their South Caucasus uh, approach as opposed to a value-driven approach. And so we cannot be blind to these developments. But at the same time, we saw the EU civilian mission taking place. We saw the EU, EU becoming more active and more vigorous uh, when it came to diplomacy. So the narrative, you know, it is slowly working uh, and it's uh, it hasn't uh, provided, given the dividends that we would expect, but then we have to be very uh, uh, reasonable with our expectations. This is why democracy narrative is one toolkit, but it's not the absolute one. Also building narratives take time, right? Azerbaijan did a very good job for 20 years building the territorial integrity negative, narrative, and we fell behind on that. So reshaping the discourse by saying territorial integrity is no longer an issue because Armenia is not making any claims that this is a democracy and a human rights issue, reshaping that narrative is going to be time consuming. It's a work in progress, but we have started it, and it is resonating with the West. So in that in that context, it's it's a very important step. Also, what we have done is we've basically attempted to shame the West in uh, telling uh, informing them that. They promote the democracy narrative when it comes to Ukraine. Why is it that when it comes to Armenia, they automatically become, uh, you know, disregard of this narrative or basically minimize it? And I think that kind of resonated as well. So between our decoupling of Russia based on Russia's behavior and its refusal to provide security as it was supposed to, and a slight pivot towards the West, the democracy narrative is slowly gaining traction.
0: Okay. Well, in that context, can Armenia continue to remain committed to a Western configuration um, without raising the ire, if you will, of Russia, who continues to uh, have a lot of leverage in the region, um, from Russian security border border security guards in Armenia to its Russian base here? Um, could it? weaponized energy for example in the case of armenia uh, you know it, it's it's a tightrope that armenia is now walking but can it continue this western configuration
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, I wouldn't qualify, qualify this as a Western configuration. I think this is a very Armenia-centric configura- configuration, but that the pivot to the West is necessary because Russia's basically told us, uh, don't rely on us, we can't help you. Uh, furthermore, uh, Azerbaijan right now, considering the sanctions and our security, uh, need to uh, get our uh, gas and security, uh, mar- uh, expand our security markets into the, into the West, we're going to be utilizing uh, Azerbaijani pipelines, and therefore Azerbaijan is more of a priority for us. So based on that Russian posturing and the refusal to help us, Armenia by necessity is pivoting west. But what other reason might be, that is the configuration. But fundamentally, Armenia's pivot to the West isn't designed to advance Western interests. It is designed to advance the Armenian interests. So if Armenian interests are not going to be advanced by being pro-Russia or Russo-centric, we have no other options. So this shouldn't be understood as a, a shift in, in, in policy that is designed to antagonize Russia. We're not trying to antagonize anybody. We're just trying to meet our minimum security needs. And because Russia and the CSTO abandoned us on four, five, six occasions, there were no other options. So we need to understand it through that configuration. Uh, But at the same time, of course, Armenia has to be very cognizant of the fact that even though Russia is a diminishing power in the region and has a lot less influence than it it, uh, used to, it is still the reigning regional hegemon. And so Russia still remains the most powerful country in the region. And Armenia has to work with Russia because they're not going anywhere. But reconfiguring relations with uh, your allies or strategic partners, whatever you want to call it, right, uh, and having disagreements isn't the same as talking about creating antagonism and conflict. So these things have to be balanced out. Um, so in, in that context, Armenia has refrained from the pro-West or pro-East, pro-West, pro russian narrative. This is simply about Armenia's interests. And whoever could advance or meet those interests, this is who we're naturally going to be leaning towards. So I, I would like to qualify the development as being purely defined by Armenia's own strategic interest as opposed to any global power or any tilt based on uh, sort of serving the needs of outside powers.
0: Okay, understood. Now, I I want to pivot, we like to use that word, um, and talk about resilience. Uh, It's a whole of government, whole of society approach. Um, In this context, can you define what you mean by resilience and how can Armenia achieve this when it has, as you wrote in the security briefing, um, underdeveloped institutions and infirm infrastructure?
1: Um, Absolutely. Um, so resilience, obviously, isn't my definition. There's a, a great deal of uh, literature in, this, in the in the uh, uh, security uh, research uh, in in the field of security studies, and generally, the concept is defined as a given country's ability to adapt, endure, and respond to stresses or shocks, whichever it may be, uh, through uh, overall enhancement of its systems. And you do this when you are facing unpredictable and generally interconnected hazards. So for Armenia, war remains the number one crisis or uh, unpredictable hazard because you don't know what Azerbaijan is going to do tomorrow or a month from now. So this is the uh, main issue that you deal with. Now, uh, resilience is designed to meet the needs of a small states. So whenever you have small states that are surrounded by predatory neighbors— Uh, especially small states that have certain democratic characteristics. Uh, Resiliency models, resiliency approaches, which uh, basically uh, integrate whole-of-government with whole-of-society approaches, have proven to be very, very fruitful. So you're talking about a very complex and multi-tiered model of resilience where you develop resilience capabilities in both all the state institutions as well as in society and social structures. Uh, the Nordic countries have done this. Uh, Sweden stands out. Finland has done an exceptional uh, job of this. And in the Baltics, Estonia also stands out. So there are quite a bit of case studies in different dynamics in different capabilities with different resources where the model has been uh, utilized for small states to be to enhance their comprehensive security through a resiliency doctrine. Uh, of course, Armenia's dynamic is going to be very different because, as you correctly noted out, Armenia is not a consolidated democracy. And so fragile states or... Uh, countries that are in the process of consolidating are a lot more vulnerable to shocks and stresses. In this context, the literature suggests that there are three super factors that are exceptionally powerful in enabling a country to enhance its resilient capabilities. And these are basically control of corruption, societal trust, and the quality of political leadership. Uh, Post-Velvet Revolution, Armenia has improved its uh, control of corruption, the alleviation of systemic corruption, so that's a very positive trajectory. With respect to societal trust, there's a lot of literature, as far as survey data is concerned, that demonstrates Armenian society has developed a certain level of trust towards institutions. Especially towards democracy. Again, it's not where you need to be. You're not a developed democracy yet, but it's a work in progress. So those two are very uh, interesting and important positive trajectory that we're seeing. High quality political leadership, however, remains one of the bigger problems because You don't have a tradition of well-developed governance. You have a society that is politically highly centralized. And so uh, structurally, these dynamics have to be addressed. And there are, of course, solutions to these uh, issues. But overall, uh, because Armenia has important democratic characteristics that have been developing since 2018, it is uh, in the process and it does have the basic foundations to develop more robust resilience as the concept is understood in security studies.
0: So democracy can
1: improve resilience? Absolutely, right? So research shows that uh, generally speaking, uh, with the exception of Singapore, uh, which is a fascinating anomaly, but that's a subject of different conversation, pretty much all countries that have uh, robust resilience or bolstered resilience capabilities are democracies. That's why we speak of the small Nordic countries and, and then the Baltic countries, which are small states. And the reason for this is because in order to have resiliency, you must meet five general governance characteristics. These range from state capacity to decentralization to institutional professionalization and political inclusivity. And then, of course, with that comes civil society. So everything I just mentioned are democratic characteristics. So, for example, non-democratic regimes, right, they might have state capacity, but they don't have professionalized institutions because there's high levels of corruption, nepotism, things of that sort. There is no political inclusivity in authoritarian regimes, and there's definitely no civil society, or whatever that is, there is, it's utterly suppressed and diminished. So societies that do have these uh, uh, characteristics tend to develop strong uh, resilience capabilities. So Armenia, for example, does have political inclusivity, generally speaking, but it's a work in progress. It has one of the strongest civic societies in all of Eurasia. That's a very, very important indicator. What does it struggle with? It struggles with state capacity because it's still in the process of building. It struggles with decentralization because power traditionally has always been concentrated in Yerevan. But decentralization is a work in progress. There are some programs that are being implemented. But the biggest problem Armenia has, right, are its institutions. Because these are institutions that have been inherited from the Soviet period, and then after 25 years of corruption and all the problems that come with non-democratic structures, post-2028, Armenia has not been able to speed up the reforms process. And the problem with having non-professionalized institutions is that they are not able to implement all the uh, reforms or all the policies that are necessary to have resilience throughout the government. So uh, in more simple terms, right, if you have professionals, professionals do a good job. If you don't have professionals, you're gonna have problems. Research clearly demonstrates that in democracies, because institutions are professionalized, they're much better at what they do. In non-democracies, institutions are not professionalized. They're designed to serve the regime or certain political elites. Therefore, they can engage in a whole-of-society or a whole-of-government approach, especially when you have crises.
0: Okay, um, so you, you partially answered <laughs> my next uh, few questions, but... Again, just for our listeners, I I want us to define again these governance characteristics and you expanded on some of them already. So state capacity we understand is reforming institutions to enhance um, uh, resilience capabilities, that's understood. Selective decentralization allows crisis response to be uh, locally appropriate and quicker. There's a danger though of ineffective decentralization. Uh, We need this healthy collaboration between local and central governments how does how do we implement uh, this selective decentralization in a way that is effective today because as you said today one of the biggest problems we have is everything is centralized whether that's from the defense ministry to governance to to education to government government structures everything is centralized right now how do we achieve that
1: well, you achieve that by developing policies that are specifically designed to bolster resiliency, right? So, for example, let's say Armenia has a crisis in south of, uh, in the South, in the Sunic region, right? What do we do? We mobilize the forces, for example, or all the capabilities in Sunic, And then we try to bring forces or capabilities from Gumri all the way to Sunic. The problem is localized. Because everything has to go through Yerevan, once you start mobilizing resources... Then again, it's a centralization process, right, where the localities are not developed, properly developed to deal with hazards or crises. So a selective decentralization model gives localities and the the local politicians and the local bureaucracies the necessary tools and skills to address and be resilient in the face of crises until uh, more resources come. Because for, for the longest time, and this is also a, a Soviet legacy, right? Because everything in the Soviet Union was, was uh, centralized. Because your institutions have been inherited and designed in such a way, they are not conducive to efficient response or to localized response. So this is one important component that developing resiliency programs or or mechanisms where locals are properly trained, local bureaucracies know what they need to do, and this allows for functionality. But the ineffectiveness part is very important because you can't uh, place all the burden of resiliency on the locals. So ineffectiveness develops when basically the central government thinks oh the locals could deal with these problems we can be slow in our response or if you need to for example share resources right uh, that's where uh, um, decentralization could be ineffective because for example the local operatives in Sunik do not want to send uh, resources to Gerard Tunic at times of necessity and if the central government doesn't coordinate this properly it could lead to ineffective uh, decentralization so those are some of the, the concerns but the Solution, as we've seen, uh, there are a lot of models that attest to this. If you have uh, well-developed programs where localities know the bare minimum that they have to do, that there are efficient uh, approaches to addressing uh, and engaging in, uh, in behavior during times of hazard or crisis, these can be very, very easily addressed.
0: Right, another uh, characteristic that is vital to build effective resilience is institutional memory. And again, you touched upon this uh, very briefly, lessons from the past, from 2016, the four day war, to all of the, you know, over the last 25, 30 years that we've seen of um, uh, border skirmishes, incursions. Um, <clears throat> how important is it for um, leaders today in positions of power and positions of affecting change? Um, to draw lessons from the past, and are we are we even doing that now? I mean,
1: <laughs> this is a very very good and very important question. Army or, or as institutions aren't professionalized. So they're not designed to have institutional memory. And this is a problem, for example, when you shift uh, uh, ministers from one position to another extensively, or you play rotating chairs, or individuals are basically taken from one ministry to the other, to the other, to the other, or middle management is constantly shifted. When you have situations like that, right, you can't have institutional memory. The purpose of institutional memory is to have those who work in these institutions for very long periods, right, develop sufficient professionalized knowledge, So if a crisis does develop, the institution already has experienced individuals that are very proficient at what they do. So a simple analogy would be, for example, firefighters, right? Imagine if a a building is burning and, you know, a a bunch of firefighters go and they they address the problem. Two months later, you have a similar situation, but the firefighters have forgotten how they're supposed to use their instruments and their mechanism to put down the fire. Well, that is a big problem. Right. And you would have that issue because those firefighters who were effective two months ago have been taken and placed in the Ministry of Education or whatever. Right. So you bring new people from a different ministry to serve as firefighters. And of course, the problem isn't going to be solved. Right. So, I mean, this is a very anecdotal, primitive example that I'm, I'm giving, but this is the problem you have. So you don't develop institutional memory, you're not able to solve problems that are consistently coming up that the institution is supposed to address. And our defense ministry is the perfect problem, right? Uh, an example of this problem, because it is an underdeveloped institution, it's a closed institution, and its capacity for memory has been very, very ne- neglected. Uh, we, we talk about the, the experience from 2016. Did we learn anything from it? That's highly questionable. Or even 2020, have we learned anything from it? We don't know also the, the another issue we have to be honestly addressing is do these institutions know how to preserve a, a memory right so if they are if, do, if they do have institutional design flaws that are not correct or alleviated they cannot develop the memory capacity necessity to address future problems so all of these are kind of inter interconnected we generally use the generic term of institutional reforms that's a broader component But when uh, these institutions do not have sufficient memory, they don't learn from mistakes, they don't develop contingency plans to address issues, through times these defects tend to accumulate and then you tend to have severe problems. So the examples that you gave uh, are exceptionally good examples that, you know, what have we learned in the last 10 years or in the last five years or even in the last two years?
0: OK, and this leads me to, to the next um, characteristic that you talked about, which was political inclusivity. Um, yesterday, we were having a conversation about the fact that we don't have um, critical conversations amongst ourselves. Um, we don't address problems as they arise. We let these issues fester, and it becomes very toxic. Um, and, and you write that you know low levels of polarization are crucial determinants for resilience. Um, And just like after 2018, when we didn't, uh, although we were one of those platforms we're pushing for transitional justice, we have not addressed the political polarization in a very comprehensive and meaningful way. And and that's why we see political opportunism taking place and we see this fracturing of the political um, elite, if you will, in the country. How important is it for us to have these very difficult conversations and, and say you know, you talk about whole of government, whole of society, it just boggles the imagination as to why we cannot come together at a time of such severe crisis for our country. Um, uh, So is it, it, not to place blame on anybody, but we have the government on the one hand, the elite, if you will, then we have the political opposition on the other hand, and yet there doesn't seem to be any conversation discourse taking place.
1: Uh, most definitely, right. It takes two to tango, and polarization has two poles. So both are responsible for the growing cleavage and and the lack of uh, discourse and the lack of uh, basic, uh, uh, decent civic, uh, uh conversation on these important political issues. And to your point, right, you know, there, there's a body of research that kind of uh, uh demonstrates this, uh, the the problems of this. Uh, you know, when you talk about non-consolidated democracies, which is Armenia, right, we're in the process of consolidating. When your research shows that countries that are basically have high levels of polarization, and they're not consolidated democracies, these countries are conducive to instability. I mean, the numbers are up to 30 times more likely for these countries to face domestic instability than uh, those countries that have low polarization. So polarization is potentially a security issue as well. It hurts decision-making, it hurts social cohesiveness, it creates all kinds of problems. So this is most definitely a very important point that you're bringing up. And we have to understand that uh, Armenia's opposition, right, being an illiberal opposition, feeds off of polarization. At the same time, the governing party instrumentalizes uh, the depolarization, the, the factionalism, to exclude the opposition from decision-making processes. Now, both have their arguments, right? But these arguments don't solve the problems of the country, especially during times of crises. And this is the issue at hand. Uh, So research shows that, listen, not everything has to be all nice and wonderful between the political parties. Matter of fact, you don't need need to have uh, extensive inclusiveness. The research says that you need to be, quote unquote, inclusive enough to address the problems that come up because if you keep having fracture, you're gonna be in a very, very fragile state. So those are very, very important uh, configurations to consider. I mean, let's look at what happened in, uh, on November 9, November 10, right after the, right after the ceasefire, right? Uh, in the midst of a severe security crisis, a, 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 a very, very serious loss in war, uncertainty, the opposition basically uh, you know, invaded government offices and engaged in the type of behavior that it did, right? This is what we're talking about, you should, you cannot have this during times of crisis. Similarly, during times of crisis, right, the government doesn't communicate well, doesn't coordinate well, and this becomes conducive to confusion. You can't have this during times of crises. So resiliency modeling, right, presents mechanisms where you diminish these types of problems so that in times of crises, instead of having chaos, you have a functional society that is ready to face, adapt, and be resilient to the hazards that, are, that you are facing.
0: Um, I don't want to delve too deeply into the strength of civil society. We know that civil society organizations are filling gaps and uh, resilience bolstering uh, functions, as you say. This, there's also some, um, I would say, problems with this as well because it then takes the burden off of the government, uh, which is a, perhaps a good thing, but on the other hand, the responsibility and accountability of the government, therefore, is then uh, diminished. But, but I do want to wrap up uh, our conversation because it was interesting the way uh, you framed it, that resilience has to be a way of thinking. Um, certainly we can implement all of these um, um, tools to, to build up capacity and resilience, but it, there has to be a logic of operations, a collective social mindset. How do we begin developing this mindset?
1: You know, the first shape is, the a, a, first a, a step in shaping this is a, a qualifying I mean, political culture, right? So, Accepting the fact that you're democratizing society, you hold the democratic values like free speech, like the right to assembly, like civil rights, et cetera, et cetera, rule of law, these are important first steps in developing these resilience capabilities, and we are on the right track. Next, of course, we have to address the problem of polarization, right? You cannot have a fractured society and then talk about a whole of society or whole of government approach it's not going to work. So we need to you know, uh, develop a more uh, pluralistic, di- politically diverse society. But these things, of course, take time. They're a working process. This cannot be forced. These have to be natural processes. And this is where civic society becomes very important. You initially asked, how po- can polarization be mitigated? And research shows that civic society excels at bringing both sides together because civic society organizations are not political organizations. They don't run for office. They don't try to get power. They try to fill gaps in society and polarization leaves a big gap right so civic society can mitigate that they do enhance the discourse they can elevate the quality of conversations and they could bring both sides together so the job of civic society isn't just basic grassroots mobilization it's also to discourse to to shape the quality of discourse that kind of addresses and alleviates a lot of the ills that our society is seeing
0: certainly and uh, sort of to conclude our, our conversation i think it's important uh, for this mantra, if you will, that we are all in this together and there has to be holistic absorption of society in all of these processes and sometimes it may sound very simplistic and yet very difficult to achieve.
1: Absolutely. In principle, it does. But in practice, it's extraordinarily difficult and complex. But it's a work in progress. And I think everybody needs to pull up their sleeves and jump into it. Because, uh, you know, when we talk about a whole of government approach, we put uh, expectations on institutions. But when it comes to whole of society approach, well, all the expectations are going to be on, on us from the cab driver to the journalist to the chef at a, at a restaurant, all of society becomes involved in this whole approach.
0: it's sort of been my mantra if we all do our jobs well exceptionally well uh then then we can achieve um our goals uh, as a country and as a nation nurses thank you once again for this uh very enlightening conversation thank you for the security report i do encourage our readers to read it um i think it is an important message to the government to the state to the ruling elites to all of us individuals trying to do our best to help pull the country out of the very dire security situation that we continue to find ourselves in. So thank you.
1: Always my pleasure.